0: The postseason is here and The Ringer NBA Show has you covered with real ones, group chat, The Answer, and Ringer NBA postgame. Check out The Ringer NBA Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite because I walk around LA every day. I like the joggers. Ready to find your next favorite podcast?
1: Spotify makes it easier than ever to discover new favorites by previewing short audio clips before committing to a full listen. You can even watch some podcasts with video or just keep playing audio in the background. It's everything you want in one app. Music, podcasts, and audiobooks across any device. Play anytime, anywhere, any way you'd like with Spotify. Try today. welcome to The Ringer MLB Show for Friday, July 2nd. I am Ringer staff writer Ben Lindbergh, and I am joined, as always, by fellow Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Hello, Zach. Hello. Michael Bauman is not with us today because he gleefully and mercilessly mocked Shohei Otani's latest pitching performance in Ringer Slack. And so he and I can no longer coexist peacefully on this podcast. So much like Juliana Markley's and Archie Punjabi at the end of The Good Wife, we cannot be in the same place at the same time. And we will be sharing custody of Zach from now on. So, Zach, I hope you're OK with that arrangement. Also, Mike is on vacation today, but that is a complete coincidence. So regardless of the reasons for Mike's absence, there will probably be fewer college baseball references and strange segues than usual this week. But we hope to have a fun and somewhat silly show for you to mark the midway point of the regular season. However, we want to start with something serious. On Tuesday, TMZ reported that Dodgers starter Trevor Bauer, the defending NL Cy Young Award winner and the highest paid player in baseball, as well as someone who has a history of harassing people, particularly women, on Twitter, is under an investigation for assault stemming from two sexual encounters that took place in April and May of this year between Bauer and a woman he met on Instagram. The woman was granted a temporary domestic violence restraining order this week, and the Pasadena Police Department is investigating the incidents. Bauer's agent put out a statement that said the encounters, which the woman's attorney say caused her severe physical and emotional pain, were fully consensual. But on Wednesday, The Athletic published details from the restraining order that's graphic, violent and disturbing. And according to that account, the encounter started out as consensual, but went well beyond that into dangerous and. Traumatic territory. Now, when we first recorded this segment on Friday morning, Bauer was still with the Dodgers and scheduled to start on Sunday. And we talked about why it was imperative that Major League Baseball or the Dodgers take action to ensure that Bauer wouldn't be on the mound amid the fallout from this case. Fortunately, MLB eventually, and a bit belatedly, came to the same conclusion and on Friday afternoon announced that Bauer had been placed on seven-day administrative leave and replaced on the roster by Bruce Stark-Radarol. The league statement reads, MLB's investigation into the allegations made against Trevor Bauer is ongoing. While no determination in the case has been made, we have made the decision to place Mr. Bauer on seven-day administrative leave effective immediately. MLB continues to collect information in our ongoing investigation concurrent with the Pasadena Police Department's active criminal investigation. We will comment further at the appropriate time." And as I said in our first take of this intro, normally we dread news breaking after we finish recording a podcast. But in this case, that's what we wanted to happen. We've hoped that we would have to re-record this to note that Bauer had been placed on leave because of the damage that it could have done and the pain it could have caused if he had been allowed to take his turn in the rotation.
2: Yeah. So Bauer has been placed on a seven-day administrative leave. And I want to say up top that The effect on the Dodgers' rotation and Bauer's status and whether his start is going to be skipped is not the most important factor to talk about with this story. It is the woman and the effect on her, but this is a baseball podcast, and in examining MLB's response, this was necessary. This was not a complicated decision. Major League Baseball cannot say, on the one hand, that it cares about certain groups of fans and certain issues, and on the other, let Bauer pitch less than a week after the reporting of this restraining order. And there could potentially be more awkwardness around this timing right now. It is only a seven day administrative leave, which means Bauer could theoretically be in line to start again before the all-star break. And it is unclear how long it will take for the Pasadena police department's investigation to continue. I would be fairly surprised if MLB acts for a longer term suspension without that criminal investigation Wrapping up, first, there's going to be a hearing relating to the restraining order against Bauer, but not until July 23rd, which is still three weeks away. So I I don't think this is going to be the last time we talk about this. I don't think this is going to be the last time MLB has to consider what to do. With Bauer's status. But it's worth noting that even though the seven day administrative leave, which was negotiated by the players, it is a step MLB can take, uh, can also be ex- extended with union approval that has happened with players before, like Domingo Herman. So there are still avenues going forward such that Bauer won't be pitching uh, with this story uh, still in its early developing stages.
1: Right. And as of yet, no charges have been filed. We don't know yet when or whether they will be for sure. But as you said, there is a hearing scheduled for July 23rd. And we should say that this administrative leave is a mechanism put in place for situations just like this one, unresolved, hanging over everything. This is part of the collectively bargained joint domestic violence policy. And there's plenty of precedent for this measure, including in the case of Dodgers pitcher Julio Urias, who was placed on administrative leave to his suspension in 2019 so There was some speculation that MLB was possibly waiting until Sunday to place Bauer on leave so that his absence would extend through the All-Star break. And it's possible that that's what the league had in mind until the growing outcry about the lack of action. But there was seemingly no need to wait because the administrative leave, as you said, can be extended with the approval and cooperation of the Players Association beyond that seven day window. And just to be clear, because this comes up in every case of this nature, Due process and the principle of presumed innocence until proven guilty are pillars of the justice system. And if Bauer is charged, he will be entitled to those legal protections. But the burden of proof isn't the same when it comes to placing a player on leave or suspending a player. And if MLP concludes that those measures are warranted, it can act and has acted prior to or in the absence of any charges or conviction. And that's in the best interest of baseball. It's in the best interest of The Dodgers and it's certainly in the best interest of any survivors who could be affected by this, any fans, anyone really who has read the details surrounding this case and been appalled by them, which it would be difficult not to be. So obviously this will be a developing story which we will continue to cover, but for now we would direct you to some of the writing and reporting surrounding the case at The Athletic and elsewhere with the usual content warnings that apply to detailed coverage of cases involving physical and sexual assault, which can be difficult to read.
2: It's worth noting that as we were recording just now, it has been reported that Trevor Bauer will not appeal the decision to place him on administrative leave. So uh, it seems like that will be what happens now, and then we'll find out what happens in a week.
1: So, I made fun of Bauman for his segues earlier. I cannot do any better than he would in this case. There is no easy way to segue from a subject like this to really anything else. But we're going to attempt to talk about baseball for the rest of this episode in an on-field way and also as an attendee because I went to a baseball game this week, Zach, and it was my first one in years since 2019. And I went to see Two-Way Otani, the show in person, Shohei Otani starting against the Yankees in the Bronx on Wednesday. It did not go (laughs) well and it did not last long.
2: Yeah. So. Ben, uh, in the days leading up to this game, Otani had hit three homers in two games. And I asked you Wednesday morning, is there any part of you that is superstitious enough that you think, Otani is on such a roll, I can't risk it. If I attend tonight's game, what if everything flips? And even as I was asking this question, I thought, okay, well, that's an absurd question to ask you of all people. You cannot be superstitious, not how you approach baseball. But now... Afterward, after Shohei Otani let off and flew out, and then in the bottom of the first inning faced nine hitters, seven reaching on four walks, two hits, and a hit by pitch. And then all seven of them scoring, raising Shohei Otani's ERA from 2.58 on the year to 3.60. I have to ask, do you think that you are at fault? (laughs) I am not superstitious by
1: nature, but there was a moment where this crossed my mind. Some primitive part of my lizard brain wondered because I was going not just to see Otani, but this was also a date night for me. This week was the 10th anniversary of my first date with my wife, Jessie, and we went to see our favorite baseball player, Shohei Otani, as well as uh, go out and about for the first time in a while and spend some time together. And when it went so horribly wrong (laughs) so quickly, Jesse said did we do this somehow? Are we somehow at fault here? Did we make him nervous? Because usually we're watching from so far away. Maybe he saw us back there and uh, he knew how much we cared. It put pressure on him. But no, I think that Shohei Otani's success probably doesn't depend on us sitting on our couch. But there is a moment where that crossed my mind and also a separate superstition, which I mentioned to you before I went to the game, which was that I wore an Otani t-shirt to this game. My wife wore in Otazi, Otani, Jersey. And this was a strange experience for me because like you, I grew up as a Yankees fan. And so I have never worn enemy colors in either the old or the new Yankee Stadium. Either I wore my Bernie Williams jersey, which was a staple of my game wardrobe for most of my childhood and adolescence, or I cover the game in the press box as someone who's no longer a fan of any particular team and is, uh, you know, journalistic objectivity. And... Well, I'm glad you weren't in the press <laughs> box for this one because there's yeah. no
2: cheering or- you know, well, crying in the press box
1: when you're, the yeah. finger there to see doesn't happen. There wouldn't have been any cheering in this case <laughs> from me, but it was tough. It was tough. And, you know, we, we went with some pricey tickets because, again, it was a special occasion. You know, Tani was in town and you only have a 10th anniversary once. And the return on our investment was just not great because not only did he not deliver, but he didn't last long at all. I mean, he didn't even last a a full inning. We got one at bat and we got two outs and then he was gone. (laughs) So not at all what I wanted. It was nice to be out and at a ballpark with 30,000 people, even if they were booing and, and jeering Otani at times, which was, you know, tough for me. But uh, just to be out there again, you know, nice to be back at the ballpark, at least for a few minutes before things went horribly wrong. And it ended up being a pretty wild game. And we did not stay for the whole thing because it ended about six hours after first pitch. Otani was long, long gone from that one before it was resolved. But the Angels actually came back to win this one. Because the Yankees bullpen imploded and allowed seven runs of its own in in the ninth as Jared Walsh hit the first grand slam ever off of Aroldis Chapman in a major league game. And the Angels came back to drive another stake into the Yankees' heart. But we were long gone and back at home by then. But I pity any Yankees fans who stayed around for the ending of that one after multiple rain delays. And I also pity anyone who came from far and wide to see Otani, because uh, depressing as it was, we only had to take a a subway trip back.
2: So when I was uh, about seven years old, I saw Michael Jordan play in person for the only time. He was on the Wizards at that point, and he had just unretired. My dad took me to see Michael Jordan play, and he shot five for 26, which I'm looking up now is, in his career, the worst shooting performance ever in a game in which he took at least 20 shots. And most of what I remember about that game is in the entire second half, my dad just promising repeatedly, no, 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 I swear, Michael Jordan is the best player ever (laughs) because just watching, I couldn't believe it. He was missing every shot. The Wizards were blown out. And at least you have MLB TV to know that, okay, Otani is actually great because if this were 20 years ago and you couldn't really watch Otani on a daily basis... And just go see Otani in person and he looks like this. I imagine even a statistical mind like yours might wonder, is this real? Because (laughs) because this was just such the opposite of what the rest of his
1: season has been like. No, my faith was not shaken. I am not a, a doubting Ben when it comes to Otani. But yeah, it does make you think of like the, the Joe DiMaggio story, right? About how he always tried to play his best because uh, someone might be seeing him for the first time or the only time that day. And so he walked away when he couldn't continue to play at that level. So you have to have mixed feelings because to see a legend, like you're probably happy that you saw Michael Jordan, right? And you get to say you saw him, even if you saw him in less than... Than ideal circumstances and and past his prime, you know, you're still seeing history. And I saw Shohei Otani in the midst of really one of the most amazing months in Major League history and maybe one of the most amazing seasons. It just so happens that I may have seen him and hopefully saw him on the worst day of that month and season. But, you know, if you care about someone the way I care about Otani, you have to stick with next to them at the worst times, as well as the best and most exciting times. So I look forward to seeing him again sometime. This was not the first time that I had seen him. I I saw him on a previous trip to New York, but he only hit at that time and he was also pitched around. So I, I still haven't seen him do anything particularly impressive in person. And I hope I will get that chance. There's actually going to be a makeup game because the Thursday matchup, which would have ended the series between the Angels and the Yankees, was postponed due to rain and will now be made up in August. And and it was supposed to be an off day. And now the Angels have to come to New York in between a series in Los Angeles and a series in Detroit to make up that game. And I'm hoping that the universe conspires and things fall just right. And Otani gets a chance at redemption and and he happens to be starting on that day. And if so, I will be back at the stadium hoping for better
2: results well you know ben if you wanted to watch really high quality two-way play you could always go to a college baseball game which (laughs) i insert because bauman isn't here to do it himself
1: the obligatory college baseball reference but college baseball season is over right i just have to clarify (laughs) now because uh, i haven't been watching but yeah i I saw college world series is, is over so i've missed that opportunity too
0: Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, you wanna take the wife on a quick vacation and get away, Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. So we want to talk about some mid-season awards. And as we speak again on Friday morning, There have been 1,208 Major League Baseball games played this season out of a scheduled 2430 in the regular season. That means with a full slate on Friday, we are poised to pass the halfway point. I know we have the arbitrary first half, second half designation that is time to coincide with the All-Star break. But by the time we get to the All-Star break, we are well past the actual halfway point of the season. That's where we are now. There is as much behind us as there is ahead of us. And so we wanted to take this opportunity to hand out some awards, and some of them will be the standard end-of-season awards that we're all used to debating at the end of the schedule. Others will be sort of silly and offbeat and kind of quirky. And we want to start with one of those in honor of that less-than-stellar Shohei Otani start. What is our favorite Shohei Otani fun fact of the season, because we have been absolutely buried and awash with Shohei Otani fun facts during this two-way season. So I don't know if I should start. Maybe we can alternate on these. Do you have one you want to lead off with? You can start with Otani because I
2: don't want to take this opportunity away from you. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, again, there's so many to choose from. And the quintessential Otani fun fact is that he did something that hasn't been done since the 19th century. And usually the Angels lost as well. So I don't want to step on anything that you might be picking here. But, you know, first since Babe Ruth, first since Bullet Rogan, first since someone you never heard of who pitched in 1888. And it's about where he hits in the lineup or whether he's leading the league in homers when he starts or the combination of home runs and starts. There are so many variations of that one. But I'm going to go with one that compares him not against all players in history, but against his contemporaries, because he stands out not just as an outlier in terms of his role when you compare to really almost everyone from the past century of Major League Baseball, but also compared to the extraordinarily talented players of today. And one fun fact that i've seen making the rounds pretty often this season is players who are in the 90th or higher percentile in various stat cast metrics so barrel rate sprint speed hard hit percentage that sort of thing and it's always an ultra exclusive group but I like to spice up that fun fact by adding his pitching performance to that. So Baseball Savant has a, a handy percentile leaderboard where you can see all these things at a glance. And so as we speak, the only qualified players for this leaderboard who are at the 90th or higher percentile in barrel rate and sprint speed are Shohei Otani, Ronald Acuna Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr., and Tyler O'Neill. So just four hitters who have qualified. Yeah, Tyler O'Neill, the power and speed monster. Doesn't really do anything except strike out and hit dingers and lift weights. It's fun to watch, but that's an exclusive group right but otani is also in the 90th percentile in strikeout rate as a pitcher and so the fact that you only have four players who qualify for this group to begin with just as pure position players and the fact that also he pitches like that's kind of the the killer line in every otani comparison to every other player which we might be making later on this episode it's yeah he stacks up this with this guy in home runs or batting average or wrc plus or whatever but Also, he pitches, and that's the argument. ender.
2: So I'm glad you mentioned that the quintessential Otani fun facts just boil down to he is the first to do X since Ruth or Rogan, because as fun as Otani is and as fun as his current stat line is, I kind of find all of the Otani fun facts repetitive. There are only so many times you can see he's the first to get five homers and a win in the same week. Mm -hmm. In a hundred years. And at some point they all sort of run together and sound fairly similar. So like you for my favorite Otani fun fact of the first half season, I also went with one that was just about his current season and not anybody else in history, which is that Otani has taken about as many plate appearances as he has faced plate appearances as a pitcher. He is batted a little bit more often, but they're pretty close And Otani has hit 28 home runs, which leads the major leagues right now, which that by itself could be the best fun fact. But Otani, in roughly a similar number of plate appearances, has allowed only six home runs. So he is homering nearly five times as often as he is allowing home runs. And I think the power Otani has displayed this season is maybe the the breakout statistic for him he is after all leading the league in home runs he's leading the american league in triples he has 17 doubles so i think his home run his home run prowess compared to his home run stinginess where he is allowing fewer than one home run per nine inning in a league that still even with the dead and ball slightly is allowing a lot of home runs uh is my favorite Otani fun fact so far
1: yeah that's a good one. I've seen a different permutation of that one that's about him having more extra base hits as a hitter than he has allowed hits of any type as a pitcher. That's a, a similar one. And There are just so many good ones. You know, he is uh, currently leading the league in home runs and triples, which is pretty rare and something that hasn't been done in a while. So we could go on. If Bauman takes any more time off, maybe we'll just devote an entire episode to Shohei Otani fun facts. No one will be here to stop us. But for now, we will move on to the next category which is most fun team you want to start this
2: one yeah my most fun team is the team i expected to be the most fun (laughs) going into the season and while they haven't quite played as well i as i expected they've been basically just as fun and that's the san diego padres who start with fernando tetis jr who is a pretty good starting point for the most fun team. And their pitching has been phenomenally fun as well, with Darvish and Musgrove joining the rotation. Uh, Mark Melanson has been a really fun closer. He has by far the most saves in the league. And I like that he is still just chugging along, even though he doesn't have the same stuff as some of the other elite closers in the league. But that lineup with Tatis and with Pham and with Will Myers and with Trent Grisham, whom we both love, uh, has just been extraordinarily fun. Basically, everyone is hitting besides Eric Cosmer Machado, of course. How can I forget about Manny Machado? So even though the Padres haven't won quite as many games as I would have expected, they're still the team I find myself watching most often on a, on, on a nightly basis when I'm just like, okay, I'm clicking around, which game looks interesting, and the Padres are always near the top of that list.
1: Shocker. I am shocked that you took the Padres as the most fun team. You can have your lowly third-place Padres. I will take the team that is ahead of them. The first place, San Francisco Giants, who are surprising in a way that the Padres are not. As you said, we expected the Padres to be fun, and they have been fun. We did not expect the Giants to be fun, or at least this fun. And so the fact that they have been Gets them a bonus in my mind. We keep waiting for them to stop winning, to stop leading this division. They've kind of crashed the party. It was supposed to be a great two-team race between the Dodgers and the Padres. Instead, thus far, it's turned out to be a great three-team race between the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Padres. They have won in some improbable ways, but they haven't really fluked into it. The performance has been there. You know, a lot of the players have exceeded expectations, but when it comes to the team's underlying performance, it's not as if this is some complete mirage. They have played really well, and they seem to have figured out ways to get the most out of their players. And as much fun as it is to see a youngish team like the Padres with a bunch of guys who have fairly recently broken out or arrived on the scene it's also fun to see an extremely old team. I mean, the Giants should be over the hill. The Giants should be decrepit. And in fact, they have old guys who are playing at their peak levels, who are having resurgent performances, who are having unprecedented performances. And I don't know what they'll do at the deadline. I. Still doubt that they can hold off the teams behind them and certainly the Dodgers for an entire half of the season. But regardless of what happens the rest of the way, it's been incredibly fun to watch
2: them do this thus far. Yeah, we've talked about them probably more than any other team in recent weeks, but it makes sense given their position in the standings. The Chaos Giants,
1: more chaotic than ever. So they're the big surprise team. We also want to hand out some awards for surprise players. So we can start with surprise hitters. And I'm going to go with the Orioles' Cedric Mullins II. To some extent, it is a surprise that there's a good hitter on the Orioles. That's maybe a little more mean than I should be. There's a handful of pretty good players on the Orioles. But it is more special, I think, that the Orioles have a breakout player like Mullins because they need it. They haven't given their fans a whole lot to enjoy and root for in recent seasons, and I think you would have been really prescient to expect that Mullins would be that guy coming into this year because he had been, prior to this season, a replacement-level or sub-replacement-level player In, you know, fairly smallish sample, but spread across three seasons. He is 26 years old. He turns 27 in October. And, you know, he was never a top prospect. He's a former 13th round pick. And so if you had Cedric Mullins on your breakout bingo card, then I tip my hat to you because he is currently leading the American League in hits. He is batting 322, 391, 550 with 14 home runs and 15 stolen bases and pretty good defense too. So he's been extremely impressive and I did not see
2: that coming. I see your 13th round pick and raise you to the 39th round of the 2015 (laughs) MLB draft. The 39th round may never exist again, given the changes to the draft we've seen. Jared Walsh of the Angels, who I knew coming up just as kind of a two-way experiment, he pitched and he hit and he wasn't Otani on either side of the ball, but he was kind of the next wave of guys who were just decent at both and he no longer pitches, but that's because he has developed into a 144 WRC plus hitter. Yes. He was very good last year, but that was only in a hundred plate appearances in a, a weird season. So I didn't really expect anything like this over a longer period of time, but he has 20 home runs. He has been the angels second best hitter with Mike Trout hurt. And he was a good enough hitter that he convinced the Angels to let go of Albert Pujols so Walsh, who had been kind of playing above his head in an outfield corner, could slide over to first base. So Jared Walsh is my surprise hitter, which adds yet another incredible individual Angel, even as the team cannot (laughs) poke its head above water.
1: Yes. As a two-way player devotee, Walsh will always be a disappointment to me because I had high hopes for him as a (laughs) two-way player, but he has exceeded all other expectations. And as someone who has watched almost every Angels game this year for Shohei Otani purposes, I have appreciated Walsh's work because especially with Trout out, not a lot of high points on that roster. It is interesting. Like when Trout comes back, you could imagine a really good Angels lineup in the second half of the season between Otani, David Fletcher, who is a favorite of ours, Trout, who will hopefully be back soon after the All-Star break, Walsh, who's been fantastic, Upton, who was having a resurgent season before he got hurt, Joe Adele could be up at some point this year, and I haven't mentioned Anthony Rendon, who entered the season as one of the very best players in baseball, though he's been a bit banged up and hasn't played that well thus far. So yes, they are really the ultimate stars and scrubs team and, you know, hovering around 500 as always, despite those standout individual performances. But it has been nice that Walsh has given me something to watch while I've been
2: fixated on Otani. So surprise pitcher, who you got? So we talked about Mullins and Walsh who came out of nowhere. My surprise pitcher is someone who had been at the top of his profession before and then I thought was totally cooked. And that is Craig Kimbrell, now, in his third season with the Cubs, his first season, he had a 6.53 ERA. That was after signing midseason. Uh, his second season in 2020, he had a 5.28 ERA. And of course, those were both small samples. Uh, this season, he has a 0.59 ERA. He has the, basically peak Kimbrell strikeout and walk numbers. He's actually among his career low. In walk rate. He's always been a little wild. Uh, Craig Kimbrell has allowed all of one home run this year. He has 20 saves for the Cubs, and he has basically been what the Cubs wanted from Kimbrell, what the Red Sox wanted from Kimbrell when they traded for him years ago. And even by the end of his Red Sox tenure, as the Red Sox were winning the World Series, he was pretty terrible that postseason. So it was two and a half years of bad Kimbrell and now he's all of a sudden back at age 33, kind of out of nowhere. I, I did not expect Kimball to ever be a good closer again. And now he's not just good, he's fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I was watching him the other night as he was finishing off the combined no hitter. Not that he knew that at the time, (laughs) but I did. (laughs) And that's why I was watching and he looked like the Craig Kimbrell of old. So yeah, we've seen some, some resurgent NL closers who've really turned back the clock. Kenley Jansen has looked like his old self this season too. So that's been fun. For my surprise pitcher, I will take a Bauman favorite in honor of Mike, who is not here today, but if he were, I'm sure he would take Carlos Rodon, who has been absolutely incredible for the White Sox and has to be a, a serious Cy Young contender at this point. He had the no-hitter, of course, but... He really has looked almost unhittable every time out. He has a 2.37 ERA through 14 starts. He is leading the league in FIP. He is leading the league in strikeout rate, at least among qualified pitchers. He's just been incredible. And I did not see this coming at this point in his career. Of course, this sort of success was anticipated for him to an extent when he was taken third overall in the 2014 draft. And he was a, a top prospect, you know, top 15, top 20 prospect in those days. But it's been a while <laughs> since those days. And he had settled in really as, you know, a mid-rotation guy for years. And then worse than that, over the last couple of years of Of course, he missed most of those seasons and had all sorts of injuries, and now he has come back better than ever, more than fulfilling any expectations that were set for him. And that's been huge for the White Sox, who have lost a lot of important players to injury, but others have stepped up to keep them in first place this season. So that's been great. Congrats to Carlos. So we want to do now the old guys still got it award. We just talked about the Giants. We could just hand it to them collectively, but we're going to single out some individuals here. So who's your old guy who still got it?
2: Old guys still got it. Shout out to the Press Box podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, My choice is Nelson Cruz, who could have probably won the old guys still got it award for a half decade now. (laughs) We could have named this award after. (laughs) him. He has just been as good as he ever has Uh, with the twins. It's basically the same batting line. Over the last few seasons, adjusted for the league environment, he has 18 home runs. He has a 157 WRC plus, and he really is entering historic territory. If you look at the best batting seasons ever for someone age 40 and above, it's David Ortiz in 2016, who's the go-to, I think Uh, he had a 163 WRC plus, and then Willie Mays in 1971, Also had a 157 matching Cruz. And then nobody else is really close. Edgar Martinez is in fourth place all the way down at 142. So as long as Cruz is anywhere near this good over the second half of the season, he will join Ortiz and Mays among the best age 40 and above hitting seasons in MLB history. And I don't think I, I really need to say anything more than that to show how special a year he's having yeah i mean he is just completely
1: ageless he does this year after year and we keep waiting and every season we say oh there's maybe some signs of decline here and then that just doesn't happen and he is good yet again and he's been just so solid in that twins lineup which has had underperforming players and injury absences so it's been fun to see him continue to succeed and of course You said age 40 seasons, but he is 41 now. Happy birthday, Nelson Cruz. He turned 41 on July 1st, which means that he missed the baseball reference age cutoff, the seasonal age cutoff by one day. So this could have been if he'd been born a few hours earlier, his age 41 season, and then it would be even more impressive, but pretty impressive even as it is. However, I will see your 41-year-old and one-day Old player, Nelson Cruz, and raise you to a 41 and 113 day old. Rich Hill. And we probably could have named this award after Rich Hill too. This should just be the honorary old guy still got it. Hitter award is named after Nelson Cruz and the pitcher award is named after Rich Hill, who I believe was briefly at least the oldest player in Major League Baseball while Albert Pujols was between teams. So he was the oldest guy who still had it. Now he is close to that, but he is still pitching well and really, I think the surprise is that he's pitching durably because, you know, for several years now, he has been good whenever he's been available, but he hasn't been available all that often. We know about The injury issues, the blisters that he hasn't been able to put behind him, but seemingly he has now. Maybe the Rays have the best blister treatments on top of everything else because he has made 16 starts and he has pitched 82 and two-thirds innings. And he is actually on pace for, well, not quite a career-high number of innings, but a career-high since 2007 when he was 27 years old with the Cubs. So. That presumes that he will stay healthy throughout the second half of the season, which is, you know, an open question, but here's hoping. So congrats to him as well for making everyone who is in their 40s or or close to it feel better about themselves. So let's talk about the most annoying injury or most dismaying injury, whatever we want to call it. There are unfortunately a lot to choose from this season because injuries have been rampant and they have afflicted a lot of prominent players. So who's your
2: pick? Most annoying injury, and I think annoying understates how how bad this injury is, is Mike Soroka re-tearing his Achilles. He tore it initially in August last year, and then re-tore it just walking to the clubhouse. Uh, he had already experienced some setbacks, but this is obviously the worst setback he could have had, and Mike Soroka was a really fun pitcher to watch because he succeeded not as a a big strikeout guy, but back in 2019, he could have won Rookie of the Year over Pete Alonso and Fernando Tatis. I think if he had been up the full season and maybe Alonso hadn't set the home run record, Soroka could have won Rookie of the Year entering the 2020 season. He had the second best projection for remaining career war for any pitcher, according to the Zips projection system. And he basically hasn't pitched since then, and who knows how he will return, who knows if he will be able to return, Uh, and it's really sad for Atlanta fans, it's really sad for Soroka, who had a really promising career. He's still young, but there's a reason that you and I, Ben, put Soroka either near the back or off our top 25, under 25 list entirely, and if I had known he was going to re-tear his Achilles doing the simple act of walking, he would not have stiffed my list, which is really unfortunate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we've seen some gruesome Achilles injuries or ankle injuries where someone's foot gets twisted in a way that you just don't want to watch. It turns your stomach. In a way, though, it's almost more disturbing that that wasn't how at least this latest injury happened, that he was just walking and he heard a pop and retore it. And that's really concerning. So you have to worry not only about his short-term performance, which there won't be any, but also his long-term performance at this point. I will take Mike Trout. And maybe that's kind of a gimme. We love watching Mike Trout. We love adding up his war. And it's not as if his legacy is really in jeopardy. I mean, if he retired today, he would be a Hall of Famer. But as you wrote when he had this latest entry... It is really costing him all of the time that he's missing in his peak years, and he was yet again off to the best start of his career this year. It is really taking away from future record chases, from his ascent on all-time leaderboards, and it's depriving us of the pleasure of watching Mike Trout in his prime while we still have him, and as someone who watches a lot of Angels baseball, I wish I were watching much more Mike Trout. So hopefully we will have him back sometime soon, and he will pick up where he left off and celebrate his 30th birthday. But it is spoiling some of our fun facts, the fact that he is missing this time for reasons that are outside of his control, such as a pandemic, but also because he's broken down a bit physically. And I hope that that will not be a sign of things to come as he ages into his 30s. So we want to look back a bit and assess the best and worst offseason moves, at least based on the results we've seen so far. What is your best offseason move?
2: My best off-season move? Uh, I considered the Udarvis trade for the Padres. I considered uh, AL Batic leader Michael Brantley re-signing with the Astros. But because Mike is not here, I have to honor him by picking Lance Lynn's trade to the Chicago White Sox. He has a 2.06 ERA for the team that I think Uh, is probably the best in the American League, at least pending injury returns. Um, And he could be their game one starter in the playoffs. So Lance Lynn to the White Sox, he'll be a free agent after this year and uh, probably in for a pretty big payday given his performance over the last few seasons. And Batman should just take every week off. We'll talk about
1: Lance Lynn and Carlos Rodon without him. (laughs) You just even need to be here. I will take the Blue Jays signing Marcus Semyon to a one-year, $18 million deal. As the saying goes, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal, but this has been a fantastic one-year deal. And Semyon has been an absolute powerhouse for them. He's kind of tough to project. He's had some up-and-down performance, but it seemed like a bargain to get him on a one-year deal. And it's been an even bigger bargain than anyone anticipated. I will give my honorable mentions to the Brewers picking up Colton Wong after the Cardinals let him go. He's been great both defensively and offensively. The Rays signing Mike Zanino for one year and $2 million, and he's been great for them. The Padres trading for Joe Musgrove, which kind of almost was an afterthought after the Blake Snell and Yu Darvish trades, but he's been incredible. The Giants signing Anthony DiScofani, and I guess you could put Gossman in that camp too. And the Mets signing Taiwan Walker, and the Nationals signing Kyle Schwarber and having him transform into Babe Ruth over the past few weeks. Lead off hitter, Babe Ruth. Yeah, right. Hitting leadoff now and turning into a power hitter. I don't know if that was what they intended, but it's worked out okay. What is
2: your worst offseason move? So, my worst offseason move I chose because it worked out miserably for both sides, which is the Chris Davis, Elvis Andrews. Swap Chris (laughs) Davis went to Texas and was released after hitting uh, for a 63 OPS plus Elvis Andrews however has been worse Uh, even though he is still uh, starting for the Athletics at shortstop. We talked about this a couple weeks ago about how that's an obvious place for Oakland to upgrade. He has the worst WRC plus among any qualified American League hitter this year. He's hitting 227, 267, 294. And you know, you're not having a great season when both your on base and slugging percentages start with a two. So, <laughs> uh, bad trade because neither side is happy with its return.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that was a case where I don't know if either side expected that much out of those players. It was kind of like, I don't know, you take him. (laughs) We don't want him anymore. And it really has worked out that way. So I was tempted to take the U Darvish trade from the Cubs perspective, given that there didn't seem to be any pressing reason for them to make that move aside from financial relief. And given that this was the year when they had this great core that was all together and ready to make this last run. And at least until the last week when the Brewers have made some Separation between them and the Cubs. The Cubs were really neck and neck and they needed a top-of-the-rotation starter. And guess what? They had one until they decided to deal him. But I don't know that I can take that over the Trevor Bauer signing, which, you know, is not because he may be suspended. He may not pitch again for the Dodgers this season. Certainly is not because the sticky stuff crackdown occurred and sapped his spin rates. That seems so inconsequential now. It's really because there were a series of warning signs. You know, we there was no incident like this publicly on Bauer's record, but there were many people who greeted that signing with dismay after his repeated incidents of Twitter harassment and said, are you sure you want to be in business with this guy? And the Dodgers said, yeah, we do. And, you know, Andrew Friedman said they had a conversation with him. They felt good about it. He's going to be a tremendous ad, not just on the field, but in the clubhouse, in the community, et cetera, et cetera. And there were many people saying, look at his history. He has told you who he is and not for the first time. The Dodgers and Andrew Freeman have decided to get a good player, perhaps at a discount because of those off the field concerns. And it has completely blown up in their faces in a way that has damaged not just them, but but others. And, you know... Inevitably, someone was going to sign Trevor Bauer. He was the defending NL Cy Young Award winner. It's not as if he was going to have to sit out that season, but I'm sure that some teams did make that decision that someone's going to sign him, but it won't be us. And the Dodgers didn't do that. They made him their highest profile signing and the highest paid player in baseball. And this is how it has worked out. Let's talk about something a, a little lighter, a little sillier the wackiest batting line and pitching line of the season. Who is your wackiest batter?
2: I uh, suggested this award solely so I could talk about Yasmani Grandal, who is hitting 186, but has a batting line 34% better than league average because he is walking 25% of the time and hitting for a lot of power, uh, the rare occasions that he does connect. Uh, He currently has 59 walks, to just 33 hits, so almost twice as many walks as hits, and he has more extra base hits than singles. So I think Yasmani Grandal is in the perfect era because I don't know. 50 years ago, people would have said, "Ah, oh, he's hitting 186. He's terrible." But he's going to have the best offensive season ever for somebody below the Mendoza line. Yasmani Grandal, and this has kept up for months now. I saw it in April and thought, "Okay, it'll go away." And saw it in May and thought, "Okay, it'll go away." But we're almost at the ulcer break now, and he's still doing the same thing.
1: My wacky batting line belongs to another hitter who has a sub 200 average, but it hasn't worked out for him quite as well. And that is Max Kepler of the Minnesota Twins, who is batting 199, 297, 392. That's an 87 WRC plus. And the reason why I'm taking him is that I just cannot understand Max Kepler. His problem year after year is a low BABIP. When he puts the ball in play, he tends not to get on base, and that's despite the fact that he's not old. He hits the ball hard. He runs fast, or you know, he's not slow, and you wouldn't expect him to have these BABIP issues. But this year, he has a 2.23 BABIP. That would be a career low, and his career is 2.50. So it's already extraordinarily low. And I guess it's because he pulls the ball a lot, and he's a lefty, and he hits the ball in the air a lot, and so it's easy to defend him. But it's still shocking to see him with a 2.50 career BABIP. I looked from 1993 to the present. That's sort of the the high BABIP era. When Babip has been about in the range where it is now, minimum 2,000 played appearances. The only player over that time who has a lower career Babip is Rod Barajas at 248. (laughs) I know why Rod Barajas had a low Babip. (laughs) Yeah, right. Kepler is now tied, or I guess slightly below Henry Blanco. So that's the kind of player, you know, slow backup catcher who played, you know, into their 30s. Max Kepler does not belong among those names. And yet he is there year after year. And this year is no exception.
2: All right. Let's talk about the wackiest pitching line. Who you got? Alex Reyes, who I'm glad is pitching well. I'm glad he's pitching at all, given that he was a former top prospect who just couldn't stay on the field injury after injury after injury. He leads all qualified relievers in walk rate this year, walking 19% of opposing batters. But it doesn't matter because Alex Reyes has 20 saves. He hasn't blown a single one. And he has a 0.96 ERA. It's like peak Carlos Marmol here, but more effective. And Carlos Marmol is one of my favorite player types, not necessarily to watch because it's excruciating at times, but uh, Alex Reyes has been so effective this year, but simultaneously, has he been so effective this year? Uh, It'll be fun to see if he regresses at all in the second half.
1: And I'm taking another favorite of the podcast, Yuzmiro Petit, who is almost 37 now, turns 37 in November. Another old guy who's still got it, although it's hard to quantify exactly what it is. But he's been effective yet again for Oakland With a strikeout rate of 4.5 per nine, that is the lowest of any major league pitcher with at least 40 innings pitched. And yet he has a 3.24 ERA and a FIP right around there. He's still good. His average fastball velocity is 87.6 now. And whether it's the deceptiveness of his delivery or or what, he just does this year after year, the soft tosser who succeeds in a game that is hostile to someone with his skill set. And he's like the pitcher equivalent, I guess, of Max Kepler, except that it's a good To be a pitcher with a low BABIP, and it's not good to, to be that as a hitter. But he has a career 273 and 252 this year, and with another pitcher, you might say it's a fluke, but it's hard to say that about Yuzmer Petit after this long a track record. Okay, we can make this quick. What's the story we're sick of? What's yours?
2: Uh, the Angels, we've given awards to Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and Jared Walsh, and the Angels are below 500. It is sad I wanted to change. Uh, We need Shohei in the playoffs to become the true phenomenon he deserves
1: agreed i considered taking the low offense and the 1968 parallels and the rash of no hitters but we get good content out of that at least so my story that i'm sick of is byron buxton getting hurt the second he comes back he gets hurt again the latest injury certainly no fault of his own he got hit by a pitch it's all sorts of things with him it's really very disappointing to see because he's been playing at such a high level when he is healthy and we all hope that he will get to showcase that over a longer stretch at some point all right what is your
2: dumbest dispute of the season so i think you have a better on field dumb dispute here my dumb dispute is off the field and it is everyone who claimed without any critical thinking that uh the state of georgia would lose a hundred million dollars in revenue from the move of the all-star game even though study after study has shown negligible impact and the 100 billion dollar figure was promoted by the tourism industry, which uh, has a vested interest in elevating those numbers, p- perhaps beyond uh, the believable range, but some people have floated th- those numbers uncritically and just said, ah, this is terrible for the state of Georgia, and we don't need to get into the specifics of that decision, which we've talked about before. But I think the fact that there were like lawsuits filed citing this $100 million number uh, is rather unbelievable to me.
1: Yeah. That's a good one by which I mean a bad one. And I will take another bad one, which we have also discussed, which was the whole kerfuffle over your mean Mercedes swinging on 3-0 and how Tony La Russa responded to that. And I think my favorite part of that quote unquote favorite was a little tidbit that was in a 538 piece by Alex Kirshner, who looked at the precedents for these, you know, supposedly disrespectful home runs. And he found that the only one that was by his definition more disrespectful than your mean Mercedes, more in violation of these supposed unwritten rules. Home run hit on a 3-0 count in the seventh inning or later in a game in which the hitter's team was leading by at least six runs, was hit by Thomas Howard on May 20th, 2000, and his team was leading by 12 runs compared to the 11 that the White Sox were leading when Yermin Mercedes hit his home run. And guess who Thomas Howard's manager was in 2000? It was Tony La Russa. What do you know? And at least according to Alex's research, there was no objection to it at the time. He couldn't find any evidence that La Russa was mad about it then. And based on his research, this seems like actually a fairly recent thing, that everyone is mad about swinging on 3-0 in blowout. So we are writing new unwritten rules here that we don't need at all. And I hope that this one will go away and that Tony Russa is the last vestige of this one because he dates from another era all right do you have a worst uh do you have a biggest storyline fizzle something we were anticipated that has
2: not panned out uh my biggest storyline fizzle is the anticipated nl east race between four great teams and we still have an nl east race but it is between four mediocre teams uh which is significantly less interesting on a night-to-night basis i think like by the end of the season if there are a couple teams still in the race Those games will be tense, and especially given the teams and fan bases involved, but there is something less compelling about four teams fighting for 85 wins versus four teams fighting for 95 wins. This is what we expected out of the NL Central, not the NL East. Right
1: mine is the Dodgers challenging the single season wins record which we both wrote articles about me before the season you early in the season when it seemed like they were on pace and uh whoops (laughs) yeah I mean look they've been good and I would still take them to have the best record over the second half of the season but they are not going to challenge the the 2001 Mariners or any other all-time great team it turns out all right do you want to talk about the best record chase of the season
2: Yeah, so uh, actually, you go first with best record chase.
1: Okay. Well, this is not a great era for record chases, really, but I am going to go with... Tatis and Acuna trying to lead the league in home runs and stolen bases, which is something that is very rare. That doesn't happen often because most players don't have the skills to be the first in both. It's a short list. It's uh, Chuck Klein with the 1932 Phillies, Ty Cobb with the 1909 Tigers, Jimmy Sheckard, the 1903 Superbas. It's been a while, in other words. And both of these guys are making runs at it and they're making runs at each other. You know, they're each other's uh, maybe best rivals for actually setting these records. So I think it'll be fun to see if they can actually do something that hasn't been done since the 30s in the AL or the NL.
2: Yeah. And my choice is, I think, obvious. It's Jacob deGrom with the ERA record. He has a 0.95 ERA uh, through his start on July 1st. And it was funny. I wasn't able to watch his game last night. I just saw fretting about his velocity i guess online and then i looked up his stat and saw he struck out 14 batters in seven innings and he allowed three runs which made this his worst game of the year but his era is still below one he basically has no more margin for error to catch bob gibson or my favorite dutch leonard but uh, he still has a chance and we're halfway through the season now so uh, until he loses steam i will still be tracking every start with bob gibson in mind
1: So we were planning to segue right from DeGrom into our end of season type awards because DeGrom will be represented there. But I forgot worst fun fact. And this would not be a Ringer MLB show without talking about the worst fun fact. Do you have a worst fun fact of the season so far?
2: So when you said worst fun fact, did you mean... Like the worst constructed fun fact or the most dispiriting fun fact? (laughs) I meant the former, but if you chose the latter, that's okay too. I did choose the latter just because we haven't talked about the Diamondbacks on this episode at all. And my fun fact is not that they set the record for uh, most consecutive road losses with 24, but it is another Diamondbacks number with the number 24, which is that in the month of May, the Diamondbacks went five and 24. And that was the most losses in a single month in franchise history. Okay, 5 and 24. Then in June, the Diamondbacks went 3 and 24. So they set the record for most losses in a month in franchise history and then matched it in fewer games a month later poor Arizona.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And my worst fun fact is about the fun fact construction. And it's about Blue Jays rookie pitcher, Alec Manoa, who has been good. So that part is true, at least. But I heard this one first secondhand from a Blue Jays broadcast and then saw it tweeted by a Blue Jays beat writer. And here was the fun fact from mid-June. Manoa is the first pitcher in Blue Jays history to pitch three plus innings and allow four hits or fewer as a starter in each of his first four career games. So you can count the qualifiers there. <laughs> <laughs> there are several, but not only that, the three plus innings benchmark is so low that you know you, you can have some pretty lousy starts as a starter if you only last three innings or just barely more than three innings. And Manoa, look, he's been good and he has sustained the stretch. He has now made six career starts and he has allowed four hits or fewer in all of them. But... Two of those starts, he went three and a third innings and he allowed four or five earned runs. On June 2nd, he allowed four earned runs and three and a third innings. He gave up three home runs. And on June 19th, he allowed five runs and three and a third innings. He gave up four home runs. (laughs) So, yes, he gave up only four four. hits, (laughs) but they were all home runs and he got knocked out in the fourth inning. So this is a fun fact that, as my friend Sam Miller says, all fun facts lie. This one lies as well. And uh, we are a bit press for time so we're going to skip our last fun category best game but i'll just say that you were going to take the dodgers padres game on april 16th that was wild and went 12 innings and i was going to take the giants angels game on june 23rd that was wild and went 13 innings and i encourage you all to look up the details of those if you aren't familiar with them because they ended up with pitchers playing weird positions and all sorts of strangeness in manfred football. so a lot of fun and uh one went the Dodgers way and one went the Giants way all right so maybe we can do this as sort of a lightning round just our rote standard end of season major awards NL and AL MVP NL and AL Cy Young NL and AL Rookie of the Year and NL and AL Comeback Player of the Year you want to just list off yours
2: Yeah, well, I'm curious because we talked beforehand about the fun categories so we wouldn't have overlaps. We could highlight as many performances and players as possible. We did not discuss these beforehand, so I wonder how much we will overlap with our awards. My NL MVP is Jacob deGrom. Who's yours?
1: (laughs) Controversial. Yes, I also went with Jacob deGrom.
2: Wow. And you are generally an anti-pitcher for MVP person. I guess yeah, that actually this shows is a special little, DeGrom is. This
1: is out of character for me. You know, I was inclined to go with, I don't know, Tatis or Acuna or someone. But DeGrom is in his own stratosphere at this point. So even I, who thinks that these awards should be separate, that MVP should be for position players and pitch, and Cy Young should be for pitchers, that is not currently the case. Pitchers are eligible for MVP. And as long as they are, I just have to give it to Jacob DeGrom.
2: AL MVP, uh, Shohei Ohtani, I I wonder who you pick. (laughs) Same.
1: I'm trying to be objective about this. (laughs) If I were to end up with an AL MVP vote this year, which is unlikely but possible, I I might have to recuse myself. But I don't know. I think I can be objective about this. And you certainly can construct a case for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And there's half a season left. So we will see what happens. But as of now, I think you have to give it to Ohtani, as long as you're not someone who votes based on team performance, which we are not what he has done and the difficulty of what he has done and the attention it's generated for baseball that catapults him to the top for me
2: yeah vlad is having a magical season i would be happy to to vote for him but we see magical offensive seasons often we do not see what otani is doing more than once every hundred years al uh, sorry nl say young who do you have i have jacob deGrom. <laughs> wow three for three okay al <laughs> yeah. say young I took Garrett Cole,
1: although, you know, his last few starts and his plummeting spin rates are semi concerning. I don't think he's going to be a bad pitcher or anything, but maybe he will not continue to pitch at the level at which he started the season. So my answer may change by the end of the season, but thus far, I'm giving it to Cole over Radone and some of the other top candidates.
2: Yeah, this one is tough. I think there are like a half dozen nationally candidates who are better than Anyone in the AL at this point, I went with Carlos Serdan for all the reasons you mentioned earlier. He is leading in strikeout rate. He's thrown, I think, enough innings that he's close in my book. And, uh, I think there's a lot of wiggle room for this award to change over the second half. Maybe Lance Landover takes him. White Sox versus White Sox. (laughs) Yes, could be.
1: All right. Who are your rookies of the year? You want to start with your NL pick?
2: Uh, NL, I have Trevor Rogers uh, for the
1: Marlins. Yes, as do I. He ranked high on our 25 under 25 list. So no surprise to see him here and AL rookie of the year. Uh, Adolis Garcia for the the Rangers. Do you have the same? Same, same. Yes. Uh, Another player who has come out of nowhere, at least for me, at age 28 and uh, concerning strikeout to walk ratio. But the power is clearly real and the defense seems to be real, too. So he has been a fun surprise for
2: Texas. And that takes us to the comeback players of the year. NL first. So this is tough because uh, my choice right now is Buster Posey. He didn't play at all last year. He opted out during the pandemic, but he also wasn't good in 2019. Uh, so I think that's enough of a reason to say that what Posey is doing this year with the best offensive season since he won MVP is enough to make him come back player of the year. But I'm not totally sure on the parameters of this award, how we should count 2020 here because it was such a short season. So I think this one's really tricky.
1: Yeah, I don't think the people who hand out this award are totally clear on the parameters for this award. Sometimes it's just a guy who had a down year and now he's good again. Sometimes it's someone who's been away for a long time or had a serious injury or some sort of tragedy. So it, it really varies year to year and league to league. But I took Posey, too, just because of the long layoff and because really, I think we all kind of thought he was done or if not done, certainly on the decline phase. And here he is playing at essentially the level he played at when he was the MVP in 2012. And, you know, even when he was playing in 2018, his power had evaporated. And so it seemed like his days as a power hitter were probably behind him. And nope, <laughs> here they are. So he is my pick as well. How about your AL comeback player of the year?
2: It's it's Trey Mancini. Even if uh, the on-field numbers aren't quite up to some of the other contenders for this award, he's only, you know, 13% better than league average with the bad. He's not playing for a good team. I don't care given what he went through in 2020, what he's come back from. Uh, and I think especially for the comeback player of the year award, like those extra flavors really should matter.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think that's a no doubter. I thought about other guys who were coming back from an off year or being away from a year. J.D. Martinez, Michael Kopech, et cetera. But no one has a, a better story and a more inspiring story than Trey Mancini has overcome more. All right. So that concludes our midseason awards, both the weird ones and the typical ones. And we will end very briefly, as always, with our unnamed
2: weekend preview segment. Wow, I'm really glad you saying that. I someone had I wasn't to gonna it. do it again, so yeah. someone had to.
1: <laughs> Anything you're looking forward to seeing this weekend?
2: Yeah, there are a, a couple of good series. Boston, Oakland, I think, is a fun one between two teams that are playing well. Uh, San Diego, Philadelphia, you, Darvish, Zach Eflin are starting against each other on Saturday. Both of those pitchers have been great this year, uh, and. I think the other series I'm most interested in is the Dodgers and Nationals, because there's obviously a lot of star power between those two teams. The Nationals are playing well recently. They have moved up the NLE standings. They're within striking distance of the Mets. And I've been talking about the Nationals for a couple months now as a potentially very interesting seller at the deadline, Max Scherzer being the best player player who could move and if the nationals stay in second place then they're not going to sell so the dodgers will be a pretty good test for them this weekend
1: yeah and i will just default to the subway series and maybe this is not one of the more intriguing subway series matchups in that both the yankees and the mets have been scuffling lately negative run differentials for both yeah not great the mets are still clinging to first place in the nl east but have not looked great lately and obviously have had a ton of injuries And the Yankees are just still struggling, and it's at DEFCON, whatever the worst DEFCON is right now, and Boone and Cashman are trending daily on Twitter. I think one reason why I'm intrigued by this is that it, it seems like we're at the breaking point where if the Yankees were to get swept or something in this series, I, I think there would be mobs with pitchforks at the Yankees' office or camping out outside Hal Steinbrenner's window, just demanding that some change be made. And, you know, he's issued votes of confidence and Cashman has issued votes of confidence. And this is not an organization that just does things on a whim or, or acts in a mercurial way the way that George Steinbrenner used to. So I don't know if there's there's... there's any sweeping change happening here, but I think, you know, things are kind of at a a fever pitch when it comes to poor beleaguered Yankees fans now. So if things go badly here after the recent embarrassments at the hands of the Red Sox and the Rays before that, if the Mets make them look bad, then it's going to be dark days indeed in Yankees nation. And, you know, Brian Cashman has acknowledged that there is a possibility that the Yankees could be sellers, that they weren't at that point as of a few days ago, but they're not far from that Point, given that they're in fourth place and there are three good teams ahead of them. So they're sort of on that bubble as well.
2: Well, it's supposed to rain in New York all weekend and the <laughs> the fourth game, as you mentioned earlier, their Angel series was postponed. So maybe that Wednesday night collapse in the ninth inning will just linger for four days as everything else gets rained out. That's the, the Noah's Ark style reset that they need.
1: Yes. All right. Well, that will do it for us today. Thank you for being my constant companion. As always, Zach, pleasure talking
2: to you. I'm still around, unlike Mike. <laughs> Thank you to
1: Shohei Otani for giving us things to talk about, even if it wasn't for some of the reasons that we wanted to talk about him, as well as the old guys who've still got it, Rich Hill and Nelson Cruz. Thanks also to Sasha Ashall, who filled in capably for Bobby Wagner as our producer this week. Yes, Bobby was absent, too. He's not siding with Bauman in the great Shohei Otani fallout. He's just on vacation, too. Mike will probably be back next week if we manage to mend our fences. Before then, please remember to follow us on Spotify. This has been Ben Lindbergh on The Ringer MLB Show. We will be back soon. Talk to you then.
0: This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid